would encourage you to take your Bibles now, if you would, and uh, we're going to enter into a time in God's Word. Today, we're going to be covering uh, the verses that take us to the end of chapter 21. I titled the sermon, The Beginning of the End, The Beginning of the End, and some of you have been feeling like maybe we're living in that right now. Maybe this is the beginning of the end. I want to begin in verse 5 through 9, verses 5 through 9. I titled this, The Throwing Down of the Noble Stones. Let's pick up in verse 5. While some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he, that is Jesus, said, As for these things that you see, pointing to the temple, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Wow. Wow. Now, it may be that the people around Jesus, as they were in the temple and he had just finished up his teaching and they were moving by, and maybe they, they felt Jesus kind of feeling this increasing pressure and weight. It was very clear. There was a lot of hostility in the air. You could cut it with a knife. I mean, it was there. And maybe people near him were like, let's cheer him up a little, right? Maybe this will cheer him up. Let's, let's point his gaze to the, the, the glory of the temple. Isn't it great that we've got this spectacular temple? Look, look, Jesus, look at these noble stones. Look at the size of these stones. Look at the offerings as they're given. For every Jew, this is just, this is a treasure. That's the whole reason they've come is, is as they're preparing here now to celebrate Passover. They're celebrating and, and, and looking at, at the work of the temple and the priests and the, and the glory of this building that Herod has built. 40, was it 43 or 46 years in the making? In the making. Wasn't quite finished. Jesus responds in a way that none of them really anticipated. He says, well, you see those rocks there? You see those noble stones? With, with the eyes of, of, of only a prophet, it's as if he can look and see what is going to come. And he says, not one will be on top of another. The days are coming. Those days are coming. The glory of the temple was unmatched. The people had a tendency to look at the glory of the temple and be more impressed with that than the glory of the God of the temple. It is in us to find ways to make uh, good gifts from God into replacements for God. And that is true of the Jews in this glorious temple. They had fallen again into this idolatrous affection of the things that were to point them to God, and instead it, it pointed to just a, a bunch of stones. Now, these were glorious stones. Don't, don't miss this. I mean, the stones were massive. There are stones that you can see to this day that are almost the size of a school bus in length, like 45 feet long and 12 feet high and 12 feet wide. Can you imagine stacking stones like that up for this massive temple complex? Now, in addition to this, the stones themselves were impressive, but they overlaid these stones with pure gold. And then they polished that gold. I'm, I'm doing my rotary polisher 
right? My DeWalt polish. Not, it wasn't like that. It was more like this, right? Th- these, these stones were noble because they were, they were covered in pure gold, and they gleamed and glistened in the morning sun as the sun would crest up over the Mount of Olives. That sun would hit that temple, and it was so bright in its reflection off the gold that it blinded the eyes of the people who were walking. They would see it, and it would just gleam. It was stunning. And the closer you got, you see the intricacies of the vine and all of the, the, the little decor that they had put on these stones. Ironically, that's one of the reasons why no stone would be left on another. It's because they were coming and they were tearing them down to spite the Jews, but also to harvest the gold from the noble stones. Jesus speaks of impending judgment, a judgment connected to their rejection of him. This is serious stuff. And Jesus is not here lightly or flippantly throwing these words around. He, he's not just like, oh yeah, that's whatever. No, he, it, the weight of these words are, are there. He feels the weight of this. And this comes as a, as a, a sobering word to those around him. They asked him, teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? He said, see that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name and say, I am he, and the time is at hand. Hmm. Do not go after them. When you hear of wars and of tumults, do not be terrified for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. And th- that's, that's a verse for us to really look at. Don't be led astray. Don't be terrified. These things will take place first, but the end will not come at once. There will be overwhelming fear, and there will be a number of false messiahs. Now, ironically, not long after Jesus was ascended to the Father, there came a flurry of people who, who rose up and basically claimed to be the Messiah. They were false messiahs, and many of them had great attraction, and people would follow them, and then they would be butchered, and they would follow them, and then they would realize, oh, this was a false messiah. All kinds of issues connected to these false messiahs that arose I think there were some people who were out there watching and they're like, wow, this Messiah thing works pretty well. I mean, Jesus came in the city and it was like, they were all there. And if he wasn't the guy, maybe I should be the guy, right? And so here they go, false Messiah 101. Copycats, fakes and frauds. I did a search on doomsday cults throughout history. There have been many, haven't there? Very weird things out there in the world. At the very heart of these doomsday prophet leaders, what is it that they inspire most? Fear. Fear. The end is near. Come. Let's all wear, you know, weird shoes and and drink purple Kool-Aid. Right? That happens 
Or the end is near. Let's all make a compound in Waco and we'll all live in this place and we'll gun and we'll get our stuff and we'll stockpile and get our guns. That ended badly. David Koresh was corrupt to the core, but he knew his Bible backwards and forward and he could manipulate it and, and use fear to, to move people. Jim Jones on down the line, the, the history, even recent history, is filled with these false messiahs. Hmm. Don't follow and don't fear. Now, this is helpful. This is helpful. Sometimes when we get into the study of the end times, there is almost a, a, a stirring of panic, like, oh, man, what if this is it? What should we do? Well, I don't know, dig a bunker up in the mountains and then we'll get some rations and we'll go there and, and hide out and things can get stirred up and, and become something that Jesus says, don't do that. Don't do that. He gives us a roadmap for how to walk into the beginning of the end. If we are the generation, then we are to not follow false messiahs and we are not to fear what is unfolding. Now, persecution and protection. Jesus gives us some glimpses here. Now, a lot of those first verses dealt with the judgment that was more immediate. In 70 AD, Titus brought in an army, and we're going to see more of that unfold. But there's, there, there, there is in prophecy a partial and an ultimate fulfillment. As if you were looking at mountain peaks, you might be able to see multiple peaks, but in between those peaks are huge valleys and spans of time that you, you don't always tell as you're reading through prophecy. So keep that in mind as we move through these things. Persecution and protection. Verse 10, Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes in various places, famines and pestilence, right? Viruses, corona even. There will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, before all this unfolds, here's what's coming. They will lay their hands on you, Christians, followers of Jesus, believers in the way of Christ. They will persecute you. They will deliver you up to the synagogues and the prisons. You will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. It's an amazing thing to track through the persecution of the early church. It unfolded just exactly as Jesus said it would. But it didn't stop back then. It continues to this day. I heard some stats that absolutely blew my mind. The, the, the stats suggested that in the last century, more Christians were killed than in all previous centuries combined. And I, I'm just like, how is that possible? the massive, current, global persecution of those who carry the name of Christ is happening right now. By God's grace, it is not sharp in our zip code as of yet. We may feel some inclination. We may feel some things. In fact, I was just thinking you know, the looting and all the target of the anti-institutionalism and the anarchists and all that insanity was targeting malls and, you know, big institutions of economic success in our country. 
One little tweak, and it's us. One, one tiny little tweak, and we become the targets. So just know, it's not like we are insulated from direct assault in these things. By God's grace, we have been spared to this point largely in this country, but it's not so around the world, even today. Listen to how Jesus sees this. Oh, wait, let me just say a few words about this. The early church persecution was used by God to take the movement that began in Jerusalem and spread it. It was as if the, the, the more they pushed down on the Christians, the more they squeaked out to the corners of the earth with the gospel message. It was a, a Christian diaspora. The Lord spread believers all around the world. And that is true. And, and look at how he sees this, this persecution. This will be your opportunity. What a Savior we have. Don't fear. Don't follow the false messiahs. And when you're persecuted, take the moment. Make the most of it. This is your chance to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand on how to answer, for I will give you a mouth of wisdom a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. I see multiple things happening in this. One, I see literally the coming day or two of Jesus' final lasting life before his crucifixion. The way that he walked in total dependence upon the Holy Spirit. The way that he remained silent before some the way that he gave answers before others. His question to Pilate and response there. Fascinating interaction. He is an example for us, and that example played out over and over and over again. Read, read through the, the, the book of Acts, right? Also penned by Luke. He carries this and he shows how not just the gospel, the, the, the life and ministry and, and work of Christ, but the effect of that on those just common fishermen as they carried that message. And they stood before kings and emperors and they gave a witness of the gospel. What a promise. I will give you a mouth and wisdom. Don't worry in advance. Don't, don't sit down and write your speech. You don't have to do that. You walk with me. You trust me. And I will employ your very mouth. Think of Moses, right? The mouthpiece of God is, is the man who can't hardly speak. And he's like, exactly right. That's just the guy. Don't be afraid. Trust me. Watch what I can do. I think of Stephen, the, far, the first martyr of the church. Think of his sermon as he spoke boldly right before he died. This is the grace of God to stand and the grace of God to proclaim. He, he is a God of grace. He doesn't just put you in the fire. He's with you in the fire. Look at the word here. I will give you a mouth. Surely, I am with you always, Jesus says in the Great Commission. I am there. I am at work. Through the Spirit of Christ, He is 
there. He is working. He is with us. Hmm. Grace to proclaim. Christian, at the very core of your existence is the call to proclaim the gospel. The, the calling of Christ upon your life as he moves you in and around to shine. It's not just, you know, live a life and, and hope that that is enough. Right? What, what did Francis of Assisi say? Um, uh, let your life be the gospel and if necessary, use words or something like that. It's always necessary to use words. Otherwise, we're just great moral people and not all the time great at that either. Sometimes we need to use words to say things like, I'm sorry. That was sinful. It was wrong. That's not what I stand for. Grace to stand, grace to proclaim. Speaking, using opportunities, even persecution to proclaim, and he will protect. Watch how this unfolds. You will be delivered up even by your, your own parents and brothers and relatives and friends. Hmm. Some of you they will put to death. Now, imagine if I told that to you, and I'm looking at, I'm looking at you, right? Some of you are going to die. What does that feel like? Jesus is saying this to people. He's looking at them as he says these words. Not all of them, but certainly the the apostles, the, 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 the most of them, would be killed. Now, how can I say, well, none of us will be? I don't know. Some of you they will put to death. They, the persecutors, the haters of Christ, the enemies of the gospel. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. Now, we have seen a rash response to confront what seems to be very clear and reoccurring hatred with, ironically, hatred in many cases. Just compounds the problem. Martin Luther King was so consistent with the gospel when he said the only way to overcome the hatred is with love. And I would add, it's the love of Christ. That's the only way. The kind of love that Christ offers. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. Jesus is not looking for fans, right? Remember that? We, we, we've been there. He's not looking for a fan club. He's calling people to come and die as they carry his name. One of the things that takes place when the church is persecuted is that she is refined. The pretenders tend to fall off, right? I heard someone say this week, no other world religion has a book of martyrs like Fox's book of martyrs. We have a massive accounting of those who have given their lives for Christ. Those who are playing games, they'll hit the door. Those 
who are faithful to Christ, who are real in this passion, who say, no, we will stand. By His grace, we will stand. We will speak, and if necessary, we will die. But we're His. Now, for those who are there, listen to this promise. But not a hair of your head will perish. Oh, but Jesus, I thought you said we were going to die. He's like, yeah, I did. I did. Some of you will die. But not a hair of your head will perish. Do you see how Jesus sees death? (laughs) Just think of what he's about to do, right? He's about to lay his life down. Did a hair of Jesus' head perish? Not one, not one. He was beaten. He was brutally murdered on a cross, buried, and then he was raised. I think of Daniel in the lion's den. I think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace with the sun in there with them. Didn't even singe their arm hairs or their clothes. It's like that. Grace to die, friends. Grace to die. It's not death to die when you are in Jesus. You can kill the body. You can't touch me. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. What does that mean? It means you prove your faith to be real as you cling to him no matter what. You don't let go. He holds you by his grace. You cling to him He holds your hands as you hold him, even unto death. This is what invincible life looks like. There are many believers in many nations that can give testimonies of brothers and sisters, parents, children, who have gone out of this world in this way. And they are more alive than ever. Their body may be laid to rest, but only for a time. And that body, that earthly body that is laid to rest, is co- it's coming back. It will be raised imperishable such that not a hair of their head perishes. Only God can say something like that. We have this treasure in jars of clay, Paul says, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God, not us. We are afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but we are not forsaken. We are struck down, killed even, but we are not destroyed. You see the consistency? You see the same reality is functioning in this. It is not death to die when Jesus is your king. Now, days of destruction, verses 20 through 24. Days of destruction. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you know it's, the, it's desolation has come near. Uh, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are out on the country enter it, for these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant, for those who are nursing infants, for those days 
There will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. Whose wrath? God's wrath. Great distress and the outpouring of wrath is coming. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. Jesus speaks about, I believe here, directly the the siege of the city that took place in 70 A.D. It was great rebellion and revolt against the Roman Empire, actually quite successfully so, for a time. And then Titus came back with a vengeance. This, This is on the Arch of Titus in Rome. To this day, you can go and see this. This is a depiction of Titus hauling off the loot from the temple as he levels it. Not one stone upon another. Pulling all the gold from the, uh, the, uh, the noble stones, as it were. He came and he laid siege to this city. He had three uh, companies of troops, battle-hardened Roman soldiers, and they were there for one purpose, to destroy Jerusalem. He wanted to eliminate the memory of the city. In fact, he was so wise in that in that siege, he wouldn't let anybody out But as people came to celebrate Passover, he let people in to the city. And they came in thinking, well, this isn't that bad, right? I mean, they're surrounded by troops, but it's 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 they're letting us in, so let's go in and celebrate Passover. And then when they're done, they try to leave. And he's like, Nope. He filled the city. Jesus says, Don't go into the city. When you see it surrounded, run for the hills. Get out of there. Literally, he said, don't do it. And they disregarded his words. There he spoke with this in view. Titus went in and he killed. He killed and then he hauled people off. That was the end of the temple. That was it. It's over. Ironically, I read that Titus said of that victory, he did not celebrate himself because he felt that he was himself an agent of God and his wrath on his chosen what would possess a man like Titus to say such a thing where does he get that from he may have read the words of Jesus himself it was the wrath of God it was horrific and it was a day that Israel will never forget. It was a day of God's vengeance and blood was shed. Jerusalem, he says, Jesus says, will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. And then he he adds this. So you move here from from, from 70 AD. Now you're you're pulling up to some a a large-scale view until the, the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And you've got this phrase here, the times of the Gentiles. What do you mean, Jesus? What does that mean? Well, the Apostle Paul builds this out for us in Romans chapters 9 through 11, but specifically, it's a reference to the grafting in of the Gentiles, bringing them in to be the people of God. In the rejection of the Jews, the, the Gentiles are given an open door. Ironically, amazingly so, God says he's doing it to stir up jealousy among the Jews of the bringing in of the Gentiles. Listen to these verses. 
I want you to understand, Paul writes, this mystery, brothers, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so we see, even today, this day, that continues to be the case. We seek to to save those who are Jewish and those who are Gentiles. But the evangelism success among those who are Jews is, is, is not great. There's a hardening of hearts among those who are Jewish. Now, there will come a day, I believe, when that will be fulfilled. The times of the Gentiles will be complete, and God, in His lavish grace, will do such a salvific work among the Jews that it can be said all Israel will be saved. It'll be a, a massive and sovereign just revival that will spread like wildfire among the Jewish people. But right now, these are the times of the Gentiles. And so Jesus speaks of us right here. Here we go. We continue. And, and, and we reach to the Jews and we reach to the Gentiles. We reach to everybody who has breath in their lungs. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. He's the Messiah. He's the only Savior. Signs of the Son's return. We'll finish with this passage. This is one of the more challenging passages Signs of the sun's return, verse 25. There will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on earth, distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. This is cataclysmic events taking place. It is not weird when a tsunami ravages a coastline to think of this teaching of Jesus. That's, that's not strange. When an earthquake absolutely flattens entire regions, it's, it's like that, right? Only it seems here what is being described is this will be increasing in nature. Like birth pangs of a woman who's about to give birth, they will increase in frequency and in seriousness and scope such that as the beginning of the end comes closer and Jesus is closer in his return, these, these just mind-blowing, disturbing events will be increasing. Massive upheaval and widespread despair. People will be freaking out. It's helpful for Jesus to give us in advance a warning of this. This is coming. It's coming. Don't fear. Don't be dismayed. Don't despair. In fact, for believers, quite the opposite. We can be excited. Maybe this is the beginning of the end. Maybe he's coming. Maybe soon. They will see the Son of Man. Oh, what a glorious verse. They will see. They. Who? Who's they? They will see the Son of Man. The whole earth. We'll see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Mm. Come, Lord Jesus. Right? Put an end to all of this unrest. Bring peace on earth and goodwill among men. Only He can do that in its fullness, such that sin will be eradicated. 
Don't lose hope. Don't lose hope. We, we should be those in the midst of upheaval who have their feet planted on the rock and say, come what may, the king is on the throne and he's coming. He's coming. And whether I live or whether I die, it's going to be okay. Not a hair of my head is going to perish. But he's coming for me one way or another. Then he told them a parable. He pointed to a fig tree. And then he, he pointed beyond that, all the trees. Let me just show you all the trees. I love spring too. Jesus and I share this in common. As soon as they come out in leaf, springtime, right? You see for yourselves and you know that summer is near. What's he saying? Well, the fruit, that's when the fruit comes, right? First the leaves, then the fruit. The end is near. When you see the leaves springing out on these trees, brace yourselves. The sun is coming. The sun is coming. Summertime is just around the corner. Think season here. Season. Not, this is, there's no way to know the exact day. You can't know the day. But you can have a real sense of the season. And, and you're, we're called to be alert and watchful as the leaves come out. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. So you could say it this way, and I hate to break it to you, but the worse it gets, the closer he gets. The things on this earth are not going to get better. We are, we are not post-millennialists here. We, we don't believe that there is going to be an ushered-in kingdom and, and all of a sudden everything is just going to be this utopian calm such that we can somehow eliminate the police. Are you kidding me? If you think chaos in the streets is happening now, Try eliminating the police. That is the craziest idea I've ever heard. That is a spirit of total delusion. People are not inherently good. Sin is going to abound, and increasingly so. Maybe that's a step that will unfold. I pray it doesn't. How foolish it would be. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all this, until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Okay, now, <laughs> here we go. The first verse, that's a toughie. The second one, not so hard. Heaven and earth will pass away. The powers will be shaken. The earth will be remade, right? New heavens, new earth. That's all consistent and clear. Now, it's the first verse that gives us pause. He says, I say to you, right? He's speaking to the crowd. I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. And you're like, whoa, um, what happened? Because we're still here 2,000 years later, and he's not yet returned. Liberal scholars say, well, listen, man, I, you know, Jesus can't get it right all the time. <laughs> Serious people say that. There are people who conclude, well, hey, you know, I mean, he got it wrong. What's the big deal? No, that didn't happen. It is literally impossible for Jesus to get it wrong. He can't get it wrong. He would be a false prophet. That is not the case. So what do we make of this? Well, we've we got to look closely at these words. 
and, and ask the question, what does he mean when he says this generation and until all has taken place? What does that mean? All what? All, all of these things? Like literally everything he's just said in the whole chapter? There are a number of suggested solutions. Some people say this generation is the generation of the Jews, uh, the, the, the ethnicity of the Jews. Some say it's, it's a generation of believers, right? Those who are following Christ. I don't think either of those options is, is helpful. At least it, it, it may be. I, I don't know. I, I, just, I just feel like it's, it's stretching where the text just kind of naturally leads you. I think this generation means the, the people who are there, these people. These people. So then you have to ask the question, well, how old are they? You know, in 40 years from now, 70 AD occurs. All these people are mostly still there. Maybe the oldest have died, but generationally speaking, they're there. They they go through the, the 70 AD experience. So if that took place, then you have to ask the question, well, how, how far ranging, what's the scope of all? And I think this is what we would say. There's a partial fulfillment in view that Jesus is pointing to. The judgment on Jerusalem, the stones being leveled, the, the, the complete burying of the city, as it were, by Titus, and, and killing of thousands and thousands of Jews, and hauling off all the treasure and spreading the people. That happened exactly as Jesus said. And I think that's where the all meets its, 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 its parameters. The ultimate fulfillment has not yet happened. He said, I won't come right away. It's not going to happen all right away. And so it's still yet unfulfilled in part. But exactly fulfilled as he predicted it would be. So this is what I would say. If Jesus predicted with total perfection what would unfold in 70 AD, and it unfolded exactly as he said, then we can conclude everything else he's laid out of his return, of the tumult, of the cataclysmic movements of heaven and earth, that is going to happen exactly as he said it would. And when that takes place, we don't know. We're 2,000 years out. It may be 1,000 years from now. It may be 10. We just don't know. We don't know, but we're called to watch and not fear. Don't be led astray and trust. He says, watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Hmm. So stay awake at all times, praying that you may have the strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. These are ominous words, are they not? I mean, this is, this is a fairly sobering teaching that Jesus gives as his final temple message as he heads then over to the Mount of Olives. There will be many who get lost in speculation. There will be many who get lost in despair. Not so for Christians, right? 
That's, that's what he's calling us to. Don't, don't fall into those traps. Don't fall into the despair trap and, and start hitting the bottle. Oh, the end is near. Let's just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we're going to die. Right? What, what hope do we have? No, that's not us. We're talking about the return of our king. Don't get lost in speculation. Oh, wait, you know, so-and-so wrote this book, and, then the, and he said that, that there's this and this and this, and that. it must be like in four days, everybody, right? How many books have been written? How many dates have been set? Don't fall prey to that. Don't, don't go in the, in the sweatpants and Kool-Aid party, right? That's, don't, don't be led astray. Don't get lost in, in all of that stuff. Focus on the work at hand and rest in His promise. Stay alert and stay in prayer. That's, that's good reminders for us. Stay alert, stay in prayer. I just close with this, a real nugget of uh, inspiration. <laughs> it's going to get worse before it gets better. We have been through quite a week as a nation I have caught myself checking my phone, watching the news. I am afraid every time I open the news app to see what insanity has unfolded next. Friends, the week that we had was not good, but it's going to get way, way, way worse than this. And there will come a point along the way where we will be in the crosshairs. And I pray that God in His grace would keep that day a a while away. But at the same time, I want Him to come. I want Him to come. So, let's close with a little context. These verses just have to put this in view. Every day He was teaching in the temple, and at night He went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet, in the morning, uh, all the people would come to him in the temple to hear him. That was his, his rhythm throughout the week. That's, that was his rhythm. Luke wanted us to know that. And I just want to close then and ask this question. Are we going to be the kind of people who are paranoid, overwhelmed, panic-stricken? Or are we going to be fearlessly faithful? in the midst of these days. We, we have what we need, friends. We have the equipment of, of, of the, the, the Word of God. We, we know the end of the story. He, he's given us the glimpse of how it's going to go. He's promised us the grace to speak and to stand. And so I just pray that we would be a fearless people and that we would pray that we would be a fearless people, faithful and fearless. I'm going to read you the lyrics of a song we don't actually do here but it's a spectacular hymn that the Gettys wrote called He Will Hold Me Fast. Listen to these three verses. And this is a, an encouragement that meets the it'll get worse before it gets better. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, He will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. Verse 2. Those He saves are His delight. Christ will hold me fast. 
precious in his holy sight. He will hold me fast. He will not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast. Verse 3. For my life he bled and died. Christ will hold me fast. Justice has been satisfied. He will hold me fast. Raised with him to endless life, he will hold me fast till our faith, brothers, sisters, is turned to sight when he comes at last. When he comes at last. How are we ever going to make it? That's the answer. Total dependence. He will hold us. He will hold us. Come what may. Here's an encouragement. A little play on words. The beginning of the end, friends, is in fact only the end of the beginning. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for the glimpse that we have of a future even though it is a, a future that is filled with pain and suffering and heartache and challenge, we thank you that you're a Savior, Jesus, that doesn't sugarcoat what it means to follow you. You don't paint some pie-in-the-sky idea of what it looks like to, to follow. It's all rosy and, and easy. You, you tell us that it's going to be tough, and some of us may even be killed for carrying the name above all names. But Lord, we give praise to You that You hold us fast, that come what may, You are sovereign over it all, and there is nothing that we would face that would overwhelm us because Your grip is an invincible grip, and this life that we have in You is invincible. Death cannot touch us. And so, Lord, help us, we pray. Help us to rest and trust in You. Help us to look to You with all our hearts. Help us to, to wait upon You, call upon You, look to You for grace and strength. Find us faithful, we pray, O oh God. Give us the grace that we need in order to shine bright in troubling days. And then come, Lord Jesus, come and reign and rule. Establish Your kingdom. We are Your happy servants. While we wait, Lord, find us faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.